Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This fifth season of our podcast is a special deep dive into a case that we covered as it was happening. The trial of Robert Durst for the murder of his good friend and confidant, Susan Berman. In Jury Duty, the Robert Durst prosecutor speaks. We present a series of exclusive interviews with L.A. Deputy District Attorney John Lewin, the lead prosecutor in that trial. John takes us on his journey from the very beginning of his involvement with the case, through the trial, and through the death of Robert Durst on January 10th, 2022. In our last installment, Lewin explained how he dealt with the defense team's unfounded accusations against him of impropriety and took us through the significance of each of the final state's witness testimonies in the trial. On today's episode, Lewin and I begin our conversation about the testimony of the only defense witness in this trial other than the defendant himself, memory expert Dr. Elizabeth Loftus. That's all coming up right after the break. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. A few quick program notes. Because the interviews had to be conducted by phone during one of John's early morning or late evening neighborhood hikes along a busy coastal road, the quality is often not optimal. We will clarify when it seems critical to understanding Lewin's narrative. Also, in the event that you would like to revisit our coverage of the testimony of defense memory expert Dr. Elizabeth Loftus, check out Season 2, Episode 17. And for the juror's response to her testimony, listen to Bonus Episode 23 of that same season. And if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. And now, here's the beginning of my conversation with John Lewin about the testimony of Dr. Elizabeth Loftus. Let's do the only witness that the defense called besides Bob himself, which was Dr. Elizabeth Loftus. Dr. Elizabeth Loftus. So the first thing you need to understand about Liz Loftus is that I had experience with her. In 2012, I prosecuted a murder of a CIA code clerk, female, who was strangled, killed in Inglewood, and then her body was found in the trunk of her Saab, which was parked in Dockweiler Beach on Imperial Highway. Off to the side, you're not allowed to park. They're very obvious where it was. The, uh, we were able to show that she had been killed by her husband. They had been married. She had an eight-year-old by a prior relationship. They had an eight-month-old, and he had a couple of his own kids, 16 and 12, if I remember. And there were some issues. The murder had happened in... I remember, I think, 1994, something like that. And I didn't start looking at it, you know, until years later. So one of the things that we ended up finding was that the 8-year-old, her son, had been home asleep in their residence. And the residence was a tall and skinny, like, four levels. He was on the top level. And he had remembered his mom coming up there and saying something to him. He didn't remember what it was. When he woke up, she wasn't there. 
and it was just him and his eight-month-old brother. And the evidence was very clear. She would never have left the eight-month-old by himself. Would never have happened. So he, unfortunately, through a variety of mistakes, was not interviewed at the time of the original murder. Some of that had to do with the fact that the stepdad got him taken out of the state and just some, some mistakes that were made. So I ended up interviewing him years later. And what he was able to tell us was that he said just what I mentioned to you. He said there was an incident that happened a couple of weeks before where his mom and stepdad were arguing, and his mom, he saw the stepdad strangling her, choking her, and that the police had been called. So I was able to go back, get an incident history of the address, and find a contact for two weeks before she disappeared, before she was killed. And there was a 911 call that went with it, and you could hear her screaming. The cops had come, and this is before O.J., might have been 92. It was before all of the, the O.J. trial, and domestic violence was treated much differently. The cops had come out. She didn't want any prosecution, and there wasn't even a report. But I was able to get his testimony. So his testimony was incredibly important. So Dr. Loftus comes on the scene, and what she's going to do is she's going to testify that basically this kid's memory you know, can't be trusted. Now, she's not allowed to testify specifically about this kid, but she's going to put on evidence that, you know, how memory works and you can't trust it and it's years later and it could be implanted and all that crap. So, now Loftus has a long history. She was one of the first eyewitness ID experts. I believe she was the expert in the original eyewitness ID case, a case called McDonald that I think was handled on the prosecution side by my friend Bill Hodgman, now retired, who ended up uh, being on OJ. And she testified regarding eyewitness identification. There's also a crossover with cross-racial identification. And the idea is that eyewitnesses are not reliable, and particularly cross-racial eyewitnesses are not reliable. And there is some legitimacy to the area, but, of course, they're not using it legitimately most of the time. They're using it because they want to do anything they can to get their clients off. So she has a history. She starts testifying in these cases. Then she starts testifying in memory cases. She starts testifying in repressed memory, molestation cases. And amongst this whole time, she seems to have a fascination with high-profile cases, particularly serial killers. Ted Bundy, the Hillside Stranglers. You know, take your pick. She seems to love these cases. And she seems to really enjoy being a part of the mix on these cases. I don't know what her issue is. But her clients, she basically goes in. And if you have a lot of money, she's testified for Harvey Weinstein, for Bill Cosby, for Jerry Sandusky. You know, open up the cash register and she'll come in and testify. So she's going to testify in my case, in the 2012 Jackson case. So... Defense gives me her information, and I decide I want to interview her. So I don't have to do this. I can interview her on my own. I'm not obligated to have the defense attorney, but I have the defense attorney on the phone, and I call her, identify myself, and I say to her, Dr. Loftus, I would like to record this interview. Do I have your permission? Now, technically, I don't have to have her permission, but technically, that's what I decide to do. And I'm shocked when she tells me, no, you may not record it. Now, I'm shocked by this because the leading thing that she says about memory is memory is not a video recorder or tape recorder. And one of the things that she testifies to is she will testify 
that you need to see and listen and review all the interviews that a detective has done with a witness because you need to find out if that detective has led the witness, has done anything improper. So the idea that this woman who makes her living off of the idea that you need to record everything criticizes police officers for not doing so, refuses to let me take her. I mean, I'm already salivating, going, oh, my God, I'm going to kill her when we get to trial. By this time, she is at, she's at uh, University of California, Irvine. In a weird coincidence, I started at University of Washington when she was there. My brother ended up getting a letter of recommendation from her at the law school. I ended up going to UCI. After I graduated from UCI, she joined the very department that I was in after she had a big fallout in Washington having to do with her repressed memory. She got sued by a former client. She got in trouble with the American Psychological Association, and she ends up relocating. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. With Deputy DA Lewin having offered background on his pretrial awareness and interactions with Dr. Elizabeth Loftus, in the next part of our conversation, John describes how he prepared to cross-examine Loftus, both in a 2012 murder trial when he first questioned her as an expert witness on memory for the defense, and nine years later when she appeared as a memory expert for Robert Durst. So she shows up for trial, and I go through and I get every article that she's written. I get every interview she's done. And when I took her on in this trial, I took her apart. So I had 20 transcripts of her prior testimony, and I know what she does. She's very experienced in her testimony. So what she does is, is she comes in, she's basically a paid professional witness, and she tries to ingratiate herself with the jury in very subtle ways. And she also makes sure that no matter what questions you ask her, she's going to only answer the questions she wants to ask, she wants out there. So I get her up, and the first thing that I say to her is, Doctor, do you understand that your responsibility here is to only answer the questions that I ask? Well, not if I can't convey the information I want. No, Doctor, that's not correct. The defense can get up here when I'm done, and they can ask you any question that you want, but your obligation not your obligation, your requirement as a witness is to answer the questions I ask. If you can't answer them, to explain you can't answer them. Will you do that? I will try. So then she ends up, every question I ask, she literally turns her head towards the jury. Now, I don't have the transcripts in front of me, so I can't tell you if I did this to her in 2012. I know that I did this to her when she testified in jurors. So I say to her, doctor, why is it that Whenever you are asked a question, you turn and you look directly at the jury instead of me when I'm asking you the question. And the, the true answer would be, well, I've learned that that's how you influence jurors, et cetera. But she's embarrassed that she's being called out for it. 
So what was hysterical was once I bring that up, she spends the rest of her testimony trying to self-correct, and her head ends up spinning like Linda Blair in The Exorcist because she can't um, – she's trying to not look, but she forgets, and she looks over constantly. So I also knew both times that she had a history of when you asked her questions about things that she had said, she would say, well, I don't remember that. I need to see what you wrote. I need to see what you said. And the problem is that most DAs don't have all the supporting documents. That's what she did, by the way, in Weinstein, and they were not able to, in my opinion, to properly impeach her. I had everything that she'd ever said. I had every study. I had every quote, and I had it with me. So I knew that when she did it, I would just impeach her with it. So I started with her in both cases with the idea of what do you consider your role to be here? And, of course, she loves that, my role, I'm the teller of truth. I'm not on either side. I'm, you know, just an expert. I'm just talking about the science, blah, blah, blah. Now, I knew that was bullshit because I had had quotes from her where she had said, listen, it's my job, in essence, to help the defense. I had similar quotes to that. So I would set her up to say outlandish things about how unbiased she was, and then I would shoot her down. Now, what's amazing is, is I did this in 2012. She brought a whole group of her, like, research assistants to watch her testify, and they treated her like some kind of royalty. I will tell you, I very much enjoyed gutting her in front of all of them. That was about as much fun as a guy can have with his clothes on. So, anyway, what ended up happening was I hit her. I hit her hard, and I knew that her history wasn't only testifying for the defense with the exception of one case but that she would try and lie. So I got her to say that she was completely unbiased. Now, I knew that she had written a book called Witness for the Defense. You can't make this up. The title is Witness for the Defense. There's a section in the book where she literally says something like, and I'm paraphrasing, he was in his mid-40s, thin with short sideburns. I had seen that look on prosecutors before. They never wanted to see me in the courtroom. Now, obviously, if you're an unbiased expert, why should a prosecutor not want to see you in the courtroom? So, of course, in both cases, I hit her with it without showing her the book, and she plays dumb. Then I have to show her the book with the title. She has to admit to the book. Then I end up basically paraphrasing from the quote, and then she's like, well, I would need to see the quote. Okay. Then I would put the quote on the overhead. So she was dead. So every time she tried to say, well, I don't remember this, I don't know what the context was, I'm not exactly sure what I meant, I had it ready to go. And it was disgusting, okay? She's the most biased, paid, uncredible expert just about that I've ever encountered. And she's doing this while collecting a salary as a tenured professor from UCI. We're paying her as taxpayers. And then she can go out and charge 50, 60, 70 grand, 800, 900 an hour, whatever it is now. So she had the great line in both cases of how she's underpaid, which I thought was hysterical. I saw the look on jurors, both cases. Like, are you kidding me? So that's what I did. In the next part of our conversation, Lewin begins to assess how Robert Durst's defense counsel, as the attorneys who called Dr. Loftus as their witness, handled her testimony at trial. And let's go to what the defense did in this case. So this was a, and there's no nice way to say it, the defense had no plan for Loftus. Number one, 
it's very clear that they never knew that I had cross-examined her before. And she did not remember me. Now, it's kind of funny because the transcript from that case, I've read every most transcript that she's given. She got worked over. I remember the judge in that case when she left was disgusted by her, absolutely disgusted. So the fact that she didn't remember, and I think she honestly didn't remember, because had she remembered me, she certainly would have told the defense. And I don't think she would have wanted to testify. But the defense never, you could do a Google search and find her and I. If you did any cursory homework on case she testified, you would find it. They had no idea. They found out that I had previously questioned her when I asked the question, which is just mind-boggling to me. Worse than that, though, is that there were three defenses in this case, as we have talked about before. And remember, Loftus is coming in for one reason. She is coming in to dispute the memory of all of the statements that Susan has made about Bob's involvement in having killed Kathy and in Susan admitting that she helped set up an alibi called Einstein, etc. So, there are three ways to handle witnesses like that. You can argue that the witness themselves is lying. Now, if you're going to do that, you're going to have to show a motive, number one. Number two, you're going to have to show, well, why would all of them be lying, especially when many of them don't know each other? And then number three, when did they end up saying these statements? Even if you're going to argue they're lying, did the statements come out before they had a motive? Also related to that is if you're going to say that the witnesses are lying, you have to explain why they're lying. And if they're lying, then you expect that they're going to want to be coming to court to testify. So number two, the witness is not lying, but they are mistaken. Now, the problem with that is, is that you have to look at how many witnesses are saying similar things, and can they all be mistaken? And generally speaking, if they're mistaken, so what that means is they're not intentionally lying. They just got it wrong. And that's where, number one, situation one, where the witnesses are lying, Loftus is not qualified to testify in that scenario. In other words, she can't say, hey, the witnesses are lying. She is qualified to testify about scenario number two. She's qualified. The witnesses are mistaken, and that gets to memory being implanted intentionally or unintentionally, etc. Number three is the witnesses are not lying, and they're not mistaken. Susan told them exactly what they're saying she said, but Susan was lying. That's actually the best defense. If you use that defense, you can't use Loftus either. Now, I knew and I've talked about this before, that when Chesnoff cross-examined Lorraine Newman, he still did not understand that distinction. He did not understand that you have to elect one of these three. They're all mutually exclusive. And instead, in one cross of Lorraine Newman, he argued all three. That concludes this installment of Jury Duty, The Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks. Join us on our next episode as John Lewin and I conclude our conversation about the testimony of defense witness Dr. Elizabeth Loftus. Again, in the event that you would like to revisit our coverage of the testimony of Dr. Loftus, check out Season 2, Episode 17. And for jurors' response to her testimony, listen to Bonus Episode 23 of that same season. Also, if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. The episode was co-produced, written, and edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks. <laughs>